Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 11 of our discussion of Inferno. And tonight we venture out across the fiery sands as we uh, embark on an uneven <laughs> set of encounters with the violence against God. Um, uh, the violence against God. Uh, the, I say uneven because, like, first we meet some fairly interesting blasphemers. Well, one, really. Um, uh, and then we have a touching encounter uh, in Canto 15. And then in the middle, <laughs> we have this weird interlude, right? Um, which, um, uh, which, we'll, which we'll talk about. Um, but, um, okay. All right. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Jennifer, this is nice weather I have going on here. It's true. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's been, it's been uh, snowing here uh, in New Hampshire, but of course uh, I'm uh, where it's snowing fire, of course, uh, uh, surrounding me here. That's of course, Brunetto Latini uh, with uh, Dante and Virgil there uh, over my shoulder here this evening. Um, which is really a reflection of my optimism, you know, <laughs> as far as where I hope to get to tonight. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. But anyway, on to the violent against God. So we've done the violent against each other with Nessus and, the, and Chiron and the centaurs, uh, right? Remember the fiery blood river uh, that went up to different parts of their body. Uh, we did the violence, violent against themselves, which was chiefly the suicides, but also those who squandered their patrimony. Um, and we looked at that last time and we just got to the fringe of uh, the to the description of the next zone, the third zone of the seventh circle, which is the violent against God. And of course, as you may remember, that zone is in turn divided into three separate sections, uh, at least two of which I hope we'll uh, we'll sort of uh, uh, um, get to here. Um, Devora, yeah, Devora's uh, just thinking about the violent against God. She was saying that she's uh, reminded of a uh, a Bible verse, uh, Matthew eleven twelve, um, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been treated violently, and violent men take it by force. Is there any connection here? Do I think? I don't. Um, I don't exactly. No, I don't think so. Um, Part of my problem, Devora, is that I don't think I've ever understood that verse, so I'm at a disadvantage from the get-go there. But um, I, whatever he's referring to, literally and or figuratively in that verse, um, Jesus is, you know, uh, talking about talking about the kingdom of heaven and those who take the kingdom of heaven by force. I don't think that that's whatever it is. I don't think that that's what Dante is talking about here. That's what Dante is depicting. Um, there is one clear theme that connects I, uh, well, violence against God is the theme <laughs> spoiler, right? That connects the three different zones of this section. Um, but 
by looking at the patterns that the three of them form, it becomes a lot clearer what Dante means by violence against God. Um, and um, I would say in some sense, the first zone, the zone of the blasphemers, is the simple version, right? Uh, like those who are uh, the, the blasphemers, those who are like actually rebelling openly against God. Um, it's like the, 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 and I think, hmm, I don't know if this is quite fair to say, that they serve as a kind of template almost. Um, but um, anyway, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Let's, let's go in and uh, uh, see the landscape and meet the people, and we'll see uh, what the text has to say about these areas and the people who live in them. Um, the second one I find particularly interesting. Um, uh, Canto 15 uh, was always uh, a favorite of mine. Um, but anyway, let's, let's, let's move on. From there we reached the boundary that divides the second from the third ring, and the site of a dread work that justice had devised. To make these strange things clear, I must explain that we had come upon an open plain that banishes all green things from its bed. The wood of sorrow is a garland around it, just as that wood is ringed by a sad channel. So we've got the Blood River, then the band of woods, uh, which of course the trees are all, are all the suicides, and then this open plain. Except don't picture a plain. Don't picture like a prairie with stuff growing on it, right? All green things are banished from its bed. The wood of sorrow is a garland around it, just as the wood is ringed by a sad channel. Here at the very edge we stayed our steps. The ground was made of sand, dry and compact, a sand not different in kind from that on which the feet of Cato had once tramped. Okay. Um, uh... Not different in kind uh, from that on which the feet of Cato had once tramped. Exactly, Arthur. That's a desert. Specifically, the Sahara Desert, right? Uh, Cato was famous for having uh, taken... I, it was in one of the civil wars, wasn't it? I always forget which war Cato the... I think it's Cato the Elder, too, not Cato the Younger. I can't remember which Cato it was. Boy, I'm not doing well on my... On the... Uh, the, the, the quiz, the, you know, the Latin quiz that, uh, Latin history quiz that Dante is presenting here. Um, but I'm pretty sure it was one of the Roman civil wars. And Cato the Elder uh, famously took his army across uh, the desert. Like, he took them on a march that nobody expected that you would be able to take an army and that army to survive across the Sahara, and they, like, survived. And, uh, uh, and that was important. Um, I think it was the Pompey and Caesar Civil War. Yeah, William, I, 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 I'm embarrassed that I can't remember more details, but I'm pretty sure that that is the situation there. Um, so it's a desert. There are lots of ways to say that, right? So, I mean, and this is one of the things that is always really fun about the, inter the indirection that Dante uses, right? On the one hand, you can often... Um, you can often translate it, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's like a simple translation, not literally translating the Italian, but, um, you know, kind of, it's almost like a riddle, right? Um, 
The ground was made of sand dry and compact, a sand not different in kind from that on which the feet of Cato had once tramped. Wait, I know this one. Desert. Okay, great. It's a desert. That's what you're describing. I got it. I'm with you, right? So on the one hand, it's almost like um, it's almost like a, like a riddle game, right? Except the way this game works is that conveying the essence, right? Conveying the thing, you know, conveying the concept of desert is... Uh, almost incidental, I want to say. Um, that is like, yes, okay, desert, but that's not the point, right? Um, the point is what is being associated, like you're, you're not only getting the concept of desert, but you're getting it packaged for you in a certain way, right? Um, you are being asked to remember the March of Cato the Elder, as you imagine this desert, right? So it's not just a question of, uh, uh, you know, figuring out, like trying to picture accurately what he's describing here. It's picturing accurately what he's describing and also um, getting all of the, you know, associating it with the things that he wants uh, uh, to associate with it. So, and what are those things? Okay, well... Um, Cato is interesting, a figure uh, from Roman history. He's a famous figure from Roman history. He's a famous figure of very rigid traditional virtue. He's associated with very rigid traditional virtues. Um, uh, he is a leader, a military leader. Um, but... I don't think this doesn't feel to me like an enormously complimentary uh, uh, reference to, to I'm not like if I'm Cato, I don't think I'm flattered by this connection. Right. Um, that the the land, right, the sand on the ground of the fiery third zone of the seventh circle of hell is going to be associated with like my career, right? I'm not sure if I'm Cato, I'm flattered by that. Um, I, I think that it's, so it's not on the one hand, I mean, it is evocative, right? You know, the, 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 uh, you know, the hot, uh, you know, sun scorched sands of the Sahara. Okay. That helps me to picture it when he described an open plain again, that could mean one of many things. And now I can, I can understand that better. So it helps me in that way, uh, to picture it. Um, the feet of Cato tramping across that desert makes me think of forced marches, uh, I can't help but think with some sympathy of the soldiers who are compelled to go on this march, uh, who might not have enjoyed it all that very much. Um, also, if I'm remembering correctly, Cato eventually loses. He is not on the winning side uh, of that war. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, ultimately, there's... A kind of desperate, stubborn, and heroic futility associated with this march as well. Um, and the futility, the doggedness, the determination, um, 
and yet the futility of that march um uh seems to me um the uh um some of the other things that I, you know it seems to me we're invited to uh associate with this and which seem to me to fit this particular uh desert uh in a couple different ways um Backed for a second to an open plain that banishes all green things from its bed, um, Gerald was asking, are there green things elsewhere in hell? Uh, uh, lush green fields, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, daisies and, and uh, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, waving in the breeze? Probably not. No, I mean, maybe in limbo. They might have those in limbo. It was nice up there. Um, but again, I don't think it's that he's trying to, he's saying this in order to, you know, contrast it to its immediate surroundings. Um, again, it's just when he's come to the end of a wood and comes to an open plain. And the, if he's, when he says that, the very first picture that might occur to you is, you know, you emerge from a forest and there's an open plain in front of you. And, and probably your very first impulse is to picture a grass-covered plain. So the very first thing he emphasizes is just like that, except no grass. No grass at all. Just dirt, as far as the eye can see. Um, and um, so, okay. So that's, that's, but it's more than that. Um, again, his phrasing here, an open plain that banishes all green things from its bed. Why is there no grass here, right? There is no grass here because the plain itself has banished all green from it. Green cannot grow here. So it the, the ground is completely inhospitable to grass. But again, it's more, he characterizes it as more active than that, right? He characterizes it as if the plain itself has kicked out all the grass, right? Um, any growth, any life, any wholesomeness that might have been, has been ejected, banished, pushed away by the plain Itself. Now, remember, we've seen before connections between the landscape and the sin, just as the, the, the punishment of the sinners, the pattern that we've been seeing is that it seems to be a sort of perpetuation, right, of the sins that they committed uh, in life. Um, so, uh, so here... The message that seems to, I don't know if message is quite the right thing, the, 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 the note that he seems to be striking about the landscape, the setting for this, which is, and of course the landscape is the punishment here, as we'll see. It is the, the method of punishment. This is not just the backdrop uh, to the punishment that these sinners are receiving. Um, the landscape is the punishment uh, that they are receiving, and so therefore it's important, it's connected. Uh, with that sin and with it, that sin's punishment, and um, and he is telling us about that that banishing of green things. Right? It is anti-life in this way, a rejection of creation. Yes, exactly, Kit. Exactly. Um, Thomas, was it Cato the younger? Yeah. No, I think you're right. See, man, uh, just just Roman history fail completely just awful i can't tell cato the older from the, the elder from cato the younger it's bad right elder is the one who 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 spoke against carthage right of course of course yeah 
Cartago de Lendaest, right? That's 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 Cato the Elder. Right, right, yeah, right, of course. Then Cato the Younger is the Civil War dude. Yep, got it, got it, got it. Mm-hmm. Exactly, Takako, you're so correct, right? This is why we need more humanities so that you don't grow up like me. That's just it. That's just it. Um, <laughs> anyhow, all right. O vengeance of the Lord, how you should be dreaded by everyone who can now read whatever was made manifest to me. I saw so many flocks of naked souls, all weeping miserably, and it seemed that they were ruled by different decrees. Some lay upon the ground, flat on their backs. Some huddled in a crouch, and there they sat, and others moved about incessantly. The largest group were those that walked about, the smallest those supine in punishment, but these had looser tongues to tell their torment. So three subdivisions of this particular zone. So we've got three different, and we um, have reason to believe, based on what we've seen in previous places, uh, that these three different, um, uh, as Dante himself, you know, Dante, the pilgrim, himself concludes uh, that the different postures of the different shades suggests that they are ruled by different decrees, right? There's, 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 there is a difference, a distinction in kind between they're all guilty, apparently, of violence against God in some sense or other, but not all in the same sense. Um, so we see this is something different, it seems, than what we saw in the violent against, uh, against your neighbor, right? The violent against others uh, in, the, in the bloody, fiery river, right? There we saw mere gradients, Right, those who were ankle deep uh, in the fiery blood, and those who were neck deep in the fiery blood, and we were told that the difference was one of degree. Right, those who were real guilty of violence against others, and those who were only a little bit guilty, uh, or guilty of a little bit, perhaps would be a better way to say uh, to say it of violence against others. That does not seem to be the case here, um, uh, I, or again, at least what Dante himself. Um, uh, concludes um, is um, that they are they are ruled by different decrees. There's there's something fundamentally different uh, about them. Um, so the the mo- the largest group are those who are walking around. The smallest group are those who are lying flat on their backs on the ground. But those are the ones that we're gonna meet first. And these are the most talkative, we're told. Had the loosest tongues to tell their torment are the supine ones, the ones lying on their back. The, uh, his description here. The dance of wretched hands was never done. That the, He's just described the flames falling from the sky, as you can see in the picture behind me there. The dance of wretched hands was never done. Now here, now there, they tried to beat aside the fresh flames as they fell. And I began to speak... My master, you who can defeat all things except for those tenacious demons who tried to block us on the entryway, who is that giant there who does not seem to heed the singeing? He who lies and scorns and howls, he whom the rains can't seem to soften. First of all, can I just say, like, 
why don't you give me a nice paper cut and pour lemon juice on it while you're at it? <laughs> like, I think that's got to be the most questionable address to Virgil that Dante has done in the whole book. My master, you who can defeat all things except for those tenacious demons who tried to block us at the entryway, right? Um, okay. Uh, all right. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure why he does that. The pilgrim. I mean, not the poet. I mean, the poet, too. But Well, we'll come back to the question. Let's see if we can figure out a theory for this. Why is it that Dante, the pilgrim, invokes Virgil's failure, still fairly recent failure, when he asks him, like, as a preamble to asking him to identify this particular giant who's bellowing from his back on the ground. Um, as you have already seen, no doubt, throughout our discussions, I am way better at proposing questions, about asking questions about Dante than I am about answering them. Um, because, again, this is, uh, this is I'm, as I said from the very beginning, total amateur over here when it comes to Dante. Um, but, um, okay, anyway... So, why does he do that? We'll see if we can figure it out. But let's keep going in order to figure it out. He who lies and scorns and scowls. He whom the rains can't seem to soften. And he himself, on noticing that I was querying my guide about him, so the giant notices, that I was querying my guide about him, cried, That which I was in life, I am in death. Though Jove wear out the smith from which he took in wrath the keen-edged thunderbolt with which on my last day I was to be transfixed, or if he tire the others one by one in Mongebello at the sooty forge while bellowing, Oh, help, good Vulcan, help! Just as he did when there was war at Flegra and cast his shafts at me with all his force, not even then would he have happy vengeance. Um, that would be a fun sentence to diagram, wouldn't it? Uh, let's see if we can sort that out. Um, so, what? All right. That which I was in life, I am in death. Simple enough, if not wholly transparent. Though Jove wear out the smith from which he took in wrath the keen-edged thunderbolt with which, in wrath, with, with, with which on my last day I was to be transfixed or if he tire the others one by one in Mongebello at the Sooty Forge while bellowing, Oh, help, good Vulcan, help, just as he did when there was war at Flegra, and cast his shafts at me with all his force, not even then would he have happy vengeance. Okay, so what is the subject, what is the verb of this sentence? Have, in the last line, right? That very last line is the independent cause. That's the meat of this sentence. That which I was in life, I am in death. Sentence number one. Not even then would he have happy vengeance. Sentence two. Under what circumstances would he, who is Jove, apparently, Jupiter, Zeus, not have happy vengeance? He would not have happy vengeance even if he wore out the smith 
from which he takes his thunderbolts, right? He drops a little factoid on us in the middle there. The keen-edged thunderbolt with which on my last days I was to be transfixed. He, this giant, Capaneus is his name, we're told. Capaneus was killed by Jove. Jove threw a thunderbolt at him and killed him. That's the story. Um, he was attacking Thebes in defiance of Jove and whammo. Jupiter throws a thunderbolt at him, transfixes him with a thunderbolt, and Capaneus dies. That's the story. Capaneus's words are, if he wore out the smith who made the thunderbolt that killed me, right? So that he just keeps getting thunderbolt after thunderbolt. No matter how many thunderbolts he gets, he can keep calling for thunderbolts until the smiths are all tuckered out making them, right? And they're like, yeah, we're like, and so he can keep throwing thunderbolts at me until he runs out of ammunition, right? And even then, he would not have happy vengeance against me, is what he's saying here, right? He was killed by Jove's thunderbolt and does not fear Jove's thunderbolts. He has reason to believe they're fatal because it killed him. But notice even how he describes that. Notice the keen-edged thunderbolt with which on my last day I was to be transfixed. I was to be transfixed. He describes not the act of his death, of the successful transfixion of his own person by the thunderbolt, right? He describes the moment when Jove took up the thunderbolt with which he was to be transfixed. So the act of Jove's decision to kill him is the moment that Capaneus recalls. And he kind of, like, skims over the actual moment of death. In other words, he's not mad about being killed. That's not his issue, right? The issue is that he can't be put down, Capaneus, right? Did Jove kill him? Yeah, Jove totally killed him, right? Did it matter? Heck no, not to Capaneus, right? He is just as defiant right now as he was on the day. Like, that. not only does he is he, Capaneus, not sorry for the defiance which led Jove to throw his thunderbolt and transfix him with it. Not only would he do it again if he had to do it over again, he's doing it again right now, right? And he's saying, bring it on. Keep throwing thunderbolts. You threw one at me before and killed me? So what? I'm still defiant, right? You might have killed my body, but what do I care, right? Here I am, and I'm still yelling at you. You can keep throwing thunderbolts as long as you, until you run out of thunderbolts, right? And even then, you will not, your vengeance will not be satisfied because you're not gonna shut me up. Not even then would he have happy vengeance. Um... And notice the way that he character the business with the Smiths, right? He doesn't talk about Jove. 
or rather, I mean, he does talk about Job, but what does he talk about Job? He talks about Job's dependence on others. He doesn't talk about the wrath of Job. He doesn't talk about the judgment of Job. He doesn't talk about, all he talks about is like the help that Job needs, right? Um, he describes the action that he describes. It's not even the throwing of thunderbolts. The action that he describes is Job taking thunderbolts from the smiths, those other folks, Vulcan, right, and others, uh, you know, the Cyclopses and stuff, uh, who are forging his thunderbolts, right? So Joe has all these assistants, he's all these helpers who are getting all tuckered out trying to help him, right? Um, and he, Jove, is being characterized as bellowing, oh, help, good Vulcan, help, Right? It's Jove who's going to cry uncle, not Caponius, right? He depicts Jove as saying, oh, help. Vulcan is the god of the forge, right? Vulcan is the god of the forge. So he's crying out. For, he just describes Jove as having thrown so many thunderbolts. He's running out of thunderbolts. And so he has to cry out uh, to Vulcan for help because he can't do it. He can't keep it up any longer, Right. Um, he's running out of thunderbolts and he's all worried. Like this, this, this is the characterization of Jove uh, that Caponius gives. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, um, so that's interesting. Many of you are asking <laughs> the big, obvious, and extremely important question, which is. Wait, why are we talking about Jove here? But hang on, we'll get there. We'll get there. I want to finish looking at what he's saying about Jove first, right? Because that, it's the only way we can answer that other question, right? If we start asking the question about like, wait, wait, why Jove? We're not going to know on what will, you know, from where will we find the answer, right? Well, this is the only answer that we're going to get. So, uh, so let's, let's, let's pursue this. He, Capanius, was defiant. Capanius remains defiant and rebellious, right? Deems his rebellion to be ongoing, and as far as he is concerned, successful. As far as he is concerned, it's a successful rebellion. Jove can't keep him down. I mean, except he can because he's lying on his back, right? With the rain of fire falling on his body. But notice how Caponius is the one who's not beating the fire out, right? To try to save himself any pain. Um, Dante's question, remember, who is that giant there who does not seem to heed the singeing? He who lies and scorns and scowls, he whom the rains can't seem to soften. He's just taken it, the fire. Right. So he is literally having flames of fire striking him continuously. And he's talking about the thunderbolts of Jove coming down on him in a continuous rain. Right. A continuous uh, a, a barrage of thunderbolts until Jove runs out of ammunition. And he won't care. And he'll remain defiant. And we see him indeed defying in ways that the others are not uh, the fall of the flames. 
Okay. Um, and again, his emphasis is on Job's dependency. His he he, he lowers Job, right? Uh, the only reason Job was able to do him down in the first place is that Job had you know Smiths handing him snappy weapons, right? Um, there's like an element of. Um, uh, there's an element of, you know, come down here and say that to my face about Caponius's defiance there, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, so Bruce, absolutely what we hear from Caponius is a blasphemer who is continuing in his blasphemy even after being thrown into hell. This is somebody who has obviously not learned his lesson, right? Um, if there's a lesson to be learned, he certainly doesn't seem to have, uh, uh, to, have, uh, to, have, to have learned it. So the question, and Gerald, that's an excellent question, um, does that make this a failed punishment? I mean, is it, is it, is it not working? Even Dante's words, Dante the Pilgrim's words there, um, he whom the rains can't seem to soften. He, Dante, seems to be under the impression that the purpose of the rains is to soften them up in some sense, right? To teach them a lesson, to make them sorry for what they did, right? Um, I am not sure that... Dante the Pilgrim is correct about that at all, right? That's, in fact, not what we've seen. The punishments of the shades in hell have not been designed to teach them a lesson. Um, they have been, in a sense, a mere outward manifestation, right, of the sins to which they gave themselves. Um, and justice, Stephen, I agree. I mean, that is, that is uh, the, you know, the uh, justice was mentioned above the gates of hell, right, as being, you know, part of the point here. Um, so, yeah, it's not about, it's not about correction. So has he learned his lesson? No, but again, I don't think that was the idea here to teach him a lesson. Um, is Capanius winning, right? Is this what winning looks like? To retain your defiance no matter what? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is he is... Remember the um, banishment metaphor from the description of the landscape, right? The open plain which banishes all green things. Caponius's soul has banished all green things, right? By orienting himself to defiance, that can sound real noble, right? I'm going to stick up for myself. 
the consequence, or rather not even the consequence, but like what that is, is what we see. Lying face up on the ground with the flames falling upon him, um, he is banishing any possibility of, of growth, of life. Um, he's not only receiving a punishment, again, he's not receiving a punishment to correct him. He's not receiving something to try to, you know, it's, it's, it's not a fight. He's, he's not in a fight with Jove. Um, he's fighting a completely one-sided fight right now. Um, he is experiencing the result uh, of... Um, uh, yeah, and I agree, Stephen. If the punishments in hell are meant to teach, then they've utterly failed. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes. Um, and yeah, Carrie, you're right. He's stuck. He is, he, is, he is stuck. This is... His spirit has come to a dead end. And again, I think about that banishing of green, right? If a plane removes from itself all plant matter, all seeds, it will never be a fertile plane. It's impossible for anything to grow there because it has anything that would be life-giving, anything that would be bringing forth fruit has been banished from it. What is he accomplishing in his defiance? What is he doing in his defiance? Um, his defiance only hurts himself. It is his own being hurt as an expression of his own. It is an expression of his own defiance itself, essentially. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Bruce uh, Heitbrink is, re is uh, remembering The Great Divorce, um, which, by the way, The Great Divorce is really interesting to read after you read Dante. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, very influenced by Dante, of course. Um, and uh, he's remembering uh, the ghost in The Great Divorce, um, and the question of whether that ghost was still complaining or whether she had merely become a complaint, right? There is, there is, Capaneus, uh, um, why are you rebelling? What were you trying to accomplish? What were your long-term goals, right? What was your mission? What was your vision, right, that led you to rebellion? What were you, you know, what were you striving for? There's nothing. There's nothing left. There is nothing but defiance. He is merely a defiance now, right? He's, he's on a loop. He's going nowhere. He's doing nothing. He can gain nothing. Um, is he victorious? No. No. He's pitiable because there's no end. He's lost sight of everything else. He has banished all that is green. It is in every way impossible for him anything he does, says, thinks, is to bear fruit. Um, this brings me back to the reign of fire throughout this section, right? We have 
fiery desert, right? Now, I've spent very little time in fiery deserts. Um, I've been to Arizona several times. I've driven through fiery deserts, uh, but I've never really... And I've been hiking, but really, it doesn't count. I've never really been in a fiery desert. Uh, and uh, so I don't know for sure. But I can imagine from some of the very few outings I have had in Arizona that one could certainly fantasize if one were in a fiery desert that it would be really an almost unspeakable belief if it were to rain, right? The idea, the image of rain falling onto the dry uh, and baked earth um, as an alleviation, right, of the heat as, you know, the bringing of life and nourishment. And, you know, it's like, why is there no life? Because it doesn't rain enough, right? That's kind of the definition of desert. Uh, so, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so that image of rain, right, coming to the ground and what life, what, you know, what, 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 what other life could be nourished if, uh, if, uh, you know, if the rain fell, uh, and hit the, and what do we see here? Rain, right? Rain, continuous rain in the desert, but it's not a rain of water. It's a rain of fire. Now, pop quiz people, think back two weeks ago, we talked about medieval metaphysics. Do you notice anything about the rain of fire? You should be... When you see a rain of fire, you should have a thought, right? Exactly! You passed, Stephen and David, both of you. Barry, oh, all of you are so good. Absolutely. It's going the wrong way. There's a reason rain falls to the ground, right? When water gets up into the air, it doesn't like being up there. That's not its home. It wants to go home, and the sphere of water is below the sphere of air, so the rain falls. Of course it does. It's going home, right? Um, just as the bubbles rise up when they get under the water, right? So when air becomes... So, yeah, fire wants to go up. Fire is above the sphere of air. Rain, fire does not fall down. The fire that is... Just, this is unnatural fire, right? So... The rain of fire is, again, as I said, the landscape itself is, is crucial, I think, to understanding what's happening here. From the very beginning, we should be looking at this and saying, whoa, this is as unnatural as zero gravity would feel unnatural, right? If for things just to start, you know, rocks to start floating upwards. Um, uh, it is a violation of how things work. And it's, of course, in a sense, worse than, a than merely a violation of how things work. It's like a parody of how things work. If water could fall and fall upon the cracked and baked earth, maybe green would come. Maybe green could, something could grow here. Right, but it's not rain that falls; it's fire that falls. Um, uh, exactly. This is all deeply, 
unnatural. We're getting to Sodom and Gomorrah, David. Yeah, the fire falling from heaven should remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, and not without reason, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, So, okay. So we have this unnatural fire, which is like a parody of the nourishing rain that could fix the... If, like, the scorching baked earth is the problem, right? You can fix that problem with some rain. Right. But instead, the rain, which is unnatural rain, rain of fire, makes makes the problem worse, much, much worse. Right. The green has been banished. Right. This is an So. Caponius's punishment, Caponius's surroundings are like a projection of his own self, his defiance against God is itself like the fire that is falling from the sky and burning him. Where does Caponius's soul want to be, right? If the fire would really prefer to go up, so would Caponius's soul, right? The souls of people want to go up to God. His defiance is only in the purest and clearest and simplest way, only hurting himself. He is not only not accomplishing anything, he's not only not doing good, right? He is doing nothing but harm and to no one but himself. His defiance does not hurt God. God is not harmed by this. Um, He himself is the only victim of his crime here, of his sin. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Bruce says it's all very Romans 1 stuff. Bruce, to me, um, Bruce is thinking of the passage in Romans 1 where Paul says, uh, talks about, uh, he talks about sin Right. And says that God's response to sin was to give people up to their evil lusts to, you know, uh, uh, sort of give them the opportunity to make their choice. Right. They chose sin and he let them choose sin. Um, yeah, to me, Bruce, that passage in Romans one feels to me like a leitmotif for the entire inferno, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think that same thing. Um, uh Now, uh, let's come back to, um, see, okay, hang on a second. Jocelyn, great point. Jocelyn says it might not, um, uh, it might not hurt God, but it makes God look bad. Well, maybe. Um, I mean, of course it depends on your point of view. Like, I'm not telling you what to think, but, uh, but again, go back to his speech. Um, <laughs> there is a point of view, a point of view, from which Caponius's words are a little comical. Right? He's lying there. He's he's lying there saying. I don't care. Throw as many thunderbolts at me as you like, right? You can't take me down. He can't be taken down any further than he's been. 
right? Um, he's like, what are you going to do to me? Um, first kill you, then send you to eternal and everlasting torment. That, <laughs> right? You know, he's, he's lying there being like, do your worst. And God's like, look around, dude. Like, the worst has happened, right? I mean, again, he's, there's a, there's a, there's a pretty serious disjunction between Caponius's words and attitude and what, in that sense, what surrounds him, uh, his actual uh, position. He's imagine he imagines God's weakness, right? He imagines Job's weakness, Job running out of ammunition. Look at the skies here. Look at the look at the look at the rain of fire. Is it does it look like letting up anytime soon? God seemed to be running shy of ammunition there, Caponius. Um, uh, no, it's that it's fantasy. It's fantasy, right? He's 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 living in his own little fantasy world. It's it's this is not. Um, it doesn't. In uh, and it doesn't. Uh, yeah, Stephen says you can't knock somebody down if they're already on their back. Uh, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, good. Stephen, that's a really good quote. Stephen is recalling uh, a line from um, the magician's nephew from the Chronicles of Narnia uh, when Aslan tells Diggory, all get what they want. They do not always like it. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, but let's get back to the other question then, because I've been avoiding it aggressively. Uh, and you guys were all sort of spotting the issue from the very beginning. Uh, hang on a second. Are we talking about Jove here? Um, like what, uh, uh, you know, David, as I think you were saying earlier on, mightn't defiance of a, a, you know, like a false god actually be a good thing, right? But apparently, so the answer would seem to be no. <laughs> the answer would seem to be no. Uh, that um, uh, we appear to be asked to believe that Caponius's defiance of Jove is defiance against God. He is being given to us as the exemplar of the blasphemers. Now, who is Caponius? Not somebody you're probably familiar with. Uh, Caponius is from Statius, I think, the Thebiad. Um, uh, one of those Latin poets nobody reads anymore, except medievalists <laughs> and classicists. But, um, uh, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, he was, he was, so, I mean, that's where his story is from. So he's, pagan character, a giant. I mean, he's a, a sort of part of the landscape, you know, the the, the mythological landscape there, um, who is killed by Jove. But the poem, Dante's poem, is here asking us to believe that it's one-to-one, -one, basically. Caponius's defiance of Jove... <laughs> so... There are several things that are a little surprising here, right? You're right to say that the surprising thing was like that Jove seems to be being taken as equivalent in some sense to uh, uh, to, to, to God. But why don't we back up and start with 
um, Caponius exists. <laughs> Can we start there? Right? And this is something, of course, that we've been encountering all along, right? We met Cerberus. We met Cer- but he's a demon. So there we were seeing the truth behind the Cerberus legend. Okay, so there isn't actually a three-headed dog of the underworld. There's a demon in the underworld um, whom, of whom the pagan poets, including Virgil, have, you know, like a, a, a sort of a, a glimpse, right? And so, they, you know, they don't get it all right, but, you know, they're, 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 it's, their stories are based on a truth, just a, a cloudy perception of that truth. And that is classic doctrine, classic understanding of how the classics work. <laughs> classic understanding. Made a joke. Didn't even realize it. Um, a classic understanding of how the how, how to read the ancients, right? Um, they're probably not completely wrong. Don't don't think, don't just chuck them out, right? Because they're very wise. But they didn't see everything really clearly because they didn't have re- they didn't have revelation, they didn't have the Bible, so it wasn't their fault. Um, we saw others. Plutus, right? Um, uh, the Furies, right? So in several cases, we've seen clearly, explicitly demonic figures. Remember Plutus calling out on, on, on Satan, right? So, um, okay, so, so we've had several demonic figures. So that seemed to be the trend, right? That... Um, these were demonic figures who um, were are part of the apparatus down here in hell, um, and they were perceived in some way. And so, and again, you can see, and the particular myths attached to them, you know, Pluto, the god of the underworld, and uh, the Furies, right, with their whips tormenting folks. Like, okay, yeah, right, sure, I can see, you know, easy mistake to make. But, but it's not remained that simple, has it? Remember the Minotaur? Who, who's he? One of you, I forget who of you it was, was asking this question. I kind of skimmed over it at the time, right? Um... I forget, David, maybe it was you asking, like, so is the Minotaur a demon, too, like Cerberus was? Um, okay. Um, the Minotaur is just a tormented soul. He seems to be being punished. But he's on the boundaries, kind of like Plutus. Maybe he's a demon. I mean, the demons are being punished also, so, you know, maybe that. What about the centaurs? What about Nessus? When we met Nessus and Chiron, we were meeting figures from mythology. But, of course, we've been meeting other figures from not only classical history, but also from classical mythology. Right? Achilles is up in, 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 uh, uh, in you know, the second circle. Now, again, he, he's a historical figure. Okay, fine. We believe that he's a historical figure. Um, uh, Caponius. Okay. Caponius's defiance of Jupiter, but now the whole thing is so. There's this the, the repeatedly now a whole bunch of times in a row here. These classical figures, these figures from classical stories and classical mythology, 
are serving as the exemplars, not just as demons like Cerberus, part of the system, you know, but as souls, as shades who are down here, um, who seem to be part of the pagan mythology. Um, Okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do with Capanius? So, so Capanius A was real, I guess. And B defied Jove and was killed by him, I guess. That happened. Thunderbolt, right? So that's history? That's not mythology? That's fact? And what's more... He now serves as exemplar for blasphemy. Okay. Um, awesome. Jennifer and Gerald at exactly the same time asked, so where's Jove? Is Jove down here somewhere? Um, we haven't seen him. We haven't seen him. We haven't seen him. Um, not going to surprise you when I confess I don't know the answer to these questions. I don't. But let's speculate a little bit more. Let's see if we can come to something here. On the one hand, here's what I was just pausing and thinking about. On the one hand, you could say that uh, since the truth of God has not yet been revealed to people in these times, right, these pre-Christian pagans, um, well, okay, so the defiant attitude that he had towards Jove, like Jove might not have been real, exactly, right? That Jove wasn't, um, uh, he didn't really have it right. But it was like what was, his defiance against Jove was counted at, like, in his heart he was defying God, right? He thought of God as Jove, right? He had a false picture of what God was. But... The defiance was real, right? Um, he was defying everything he knew about God. He didn't, get, he didn't have all the details right, right? But he knew enough to know that God was there. And he knew enough to defy him. He made, and that choice counted. Seems to be one way to understand this picture. Um, Bruce says... <laughs> Lots of C.S. Lewis connections tonight. Uh, Bruce says it's like Aslan talking to Emmet, uh, the uh, Kalaman soldier in the last battle, uh, but in the opposite direction. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes, now Stephen says, had he devoted himself to Jove, he'd have found himself up in limbo at least. Yes, yes. And that's where this isn't exactly reciprocal, Right. Um, those who did worship Jove appropriately do not seem to end up in heaven. Limbo is stuffed full of virtuous folks um, who followed God the best way they knew how, but they're not saved, 
because they lived before Christ. So they're in limbo, um, which is in hell, but it's not, uh, yeah, but they're not being punished apart from their size, remember, right? Uh, because they know that heaven exists, but they can't go there. Virgil, of course, being one of those, being one of those, um, um, being one of those people who lives there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's interesting. Stephen says, if you reject Jove, there are two directions you can go. Uh, more correct and onto worshiping God, uh, or more wrong and blaspheming both, perhaps. So one thing that I would say, on the one hand, I don't want to overstate this, so I want to be very careful. But on the one hand, I think that most medieval readers would have fewer questions about this passage than modern readers have. Or, let me say that a slightly different way. It wouldn't strike medieval readers as quite as weird as it sounds to modern readers, right? Modern readers will hear this passage where, like, he was defying Jove, and it was taken as if he was defying John. Be like, well, isn't that weird? Like, again, as one of you was saying, isn't defying Jove, since Jove is a false god, isn't that a good thing, right? Shouldn't you rebel against Jove? Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that better? Um, that would not make sense, I think, to a medieval person. At least that's not their default perspective at all. Um... Jove was taken, and, okay, so I'm trying to explain, let me start with a qualifier. What I am going to be explaining here is not theology. I am not going to be doing theology here. I'm doing poetry. I'm talking about, not about theology, but about poetry. When we're, talk, when we're doing theology, when you're reading a medieval theologian, they are quite clear on God and the uniqueness of God and the relative position of other false gods in comparison to God. That is not a question. But when you're talking about poetry, um, when in a poetic context you are referring to God Almighty, the God of the Bible, in a medieval poem, you are very likely to call him Jove. That often happens. Um, as a metaphor, as a parallel, especially if you are telling a story which is sort of operating within a classical mythology framework, that poetically speaking, Mythologically speaking, Jove is taken as a parallel to God. And therefore, remember, I'm not talking about theology, I'm talking about poetry. Therefore, a kind of image of God. You will often hear medieval Christian characters, not just characters in poems written by Christians, characters who within their narratives are themselves Christians, who pray to God and say, O Jove. That is not right by Jove. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, right. You know, Sharon points out the by Jove thing. Uh, it, it's, it's like becomes a joke and a little sort of petty swear word, right? But yeah, yeah. People who said, by Jove, 
um, don't don't like they're not Greco-Roman pagans, right? That's not said in the context of it's it's swearing by God, except calling him Jove. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, so, okay, um, that's why this idea, this parallelism, at the very least, let's call it for now parallelism between Jove and God, would feel more natural, right? Um, they would be, they, medieval readers, I mean, would be a little le- le- less likely to get like a Protestant or a sort of Oliver Cromwellish twitch when they read this passage, right? Those are false gods. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yes. If you're St. Augustine, or if you're writing theology, yes, they are. But that's not what they were doing. <laughs> but this isn't exactly that kind of poem either. Um, and that is not, um, that is not the answer that I'm giving about the poetic usage of the name Jove and the poetic overlap between, or rather the adoption of Jove as a metaphor in a sense, or as a figure for, that's a better way to say it, as a figure for God Almighty, um, that doesn't answer make all the problems go away with this passage in any way like it doesn't solve it definitely doesn't solve it um but i think it helps a little and here's the thing that i find myself both needing to be reminded of and needing to remind others of this isn't real remember it's only a vision right don't forget Dante's not seeing the real hell. He is receiving a vision, right? A vision which is adapted to him. In the hell that he can see, there might be figures from Greco-Roman mythology in the landscape. Why? Because we can learn things from reading Greco-Roman mythology. Right? If we read the story of Caponius and Statius, we might be edified by it. Right? We see his defiance against Job, and we see him being stricken down, and we, as Christian readers, can can we can make the leap, right? We can do the allegorical reading. That's not hard, right? And we can take a salutary moral lesson from that mythological story. This, of course, is how it's done. This is how you read classical mythology. Isn't that what's happening here? Just dramatized in a different way? Do you see what I mean? Caponius doesn't seem to have learned his lesson, but perhaps Caponius is the lesson from which we can learn something. Is he making a theological claim? that the giant Caponius really existed, A, really existed in history, and B, was cast into the into hell because... Uh, no, I don't necessarily think that that's the only way. Exactly as Bruce reminds us, it's only a model. 
Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, awesome. Hey, Anthony, good to see you again. I see Anthony's joining us for our, his first live class since the Book of Lost Tales, or since Unfinished Tales. Wow, it's, that's, uh, that, that puts it back a bit, right, uh, as, uh, as Pippin would say. Um, good gracious me, Anthony. What was that, 2014? Like seven years ago, something like that. Wow. Uh, anyway, um, okay. This is the point at which we would return to the question. So why again does Dante bring up Virgil's failure? I still don't know, but I can't help but wonder if it has something to like. Now that we come back to this, I can't help but wonder if the whole place of Greco-Roman mythology doesn't have something to do with this, right? When confronted by the tenacious demons of the Judeo-Christian hell, Virgil was helpless. There was nothing he could do, right? Um, Virgil, that's Virgil's world, right? Anyway, Woefully incomplete answer. But we got to move on. Okay. Virgil's commentary on Capenius. Then did my guide speak with such vehemence as I had never heard him use before. O Capanius, for your arrogance that is not quenched, you're punished all the more. No torture other than your own madness could offer pain enough to match your wrath. But then with gentler face he turned to me and said... That man was one of seven kings besieging Thebes. He held, and still it seems holds, God in great disdain, despising him. But as I told him now, his maledictions sit well as ornaments upon his chest. What are the ornaments upon his chest? The wounds of the fire that is striking him that he's not putting out, right? Um, so like the singed sores of the flames... Are his are the ornaments that are sitting on his chest. His maledictions sit well as ornaments. So he connects his maledictions, his evil speech, with the ornaments that are on his chest, with the wounds that he is receiving in punishment. You can see how explicitly Virgil describes what we were concluding before. Um, For your arrogance that is not quenched, you're punished all the more. No torture other than your own madness could offer pain enough to match your wrath. His madness, the madness of his defiance, is the only, is the fit punishment to match his wrath. It is the torture with which his wrath against God, his, is, you know, his violence against God, um, is, uh, is punished. Um, yeah. Okay. So good. I think we got it. I think we got it right before. Virgil seems to agree with us here. Let's keep going. Because now we come to the interlude. <laughs> All right. Before I read this, I'm going to make a pledge. My pledge is I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this. This is what I wrote my master's thesis on, by the way. Um, these these uh, 21 lines 
This is what I wrote my master's thesis on. Um, and to be completely honest with you, I can't even 100% remember what I said in my master's thesis. That was a really long time ago, and I don't even have a copy anymore, I don't think. Uh, I couldn't find one. I was looking. I couldn't find one. Um, but uh, anyway, among all other things that I have shown you since we first made our way across the gate, whose threshold is forbidden to no one, nothing, no thing has yet been witnessed by your eyes as notable as this red rivulet, which quenches every flame that burns above it. That was the speech that inspired me to write my thesis on this section. Like, Virgil starts with this huge setup, right? We've been traveling a long time now, Dante, right? We've seen a lot of things. We've been through the gates of hell and then all the way down to the far end of the seventh circle of hell. And nothing you've seen is more notable than this stream of red liquid that you're looking at right now. And I'm like, oh, this has got to be good, right? Whew, here's that, I mean, super important. These words were spoken by my guide. At this I begged him to bestow the food for which he had already given me the craving. A devastated land lies in mid-sea, a land that is called Crete, he answered me. Under its king, the world once lived chastely. Within that land there was a mountain, blessed with leaves and waters, and they called it Ida. But it is withered now, like some old thing. It once was chosen as a trusted cradle by Rhea for her son, to hide him better. When he cried out, she had her servants clamor. Within the mountain is a huge old man who stands erect, his back turned toward Damietta, and looks at Rome as if it were his mirror. Okay, actually, I continued on to the next few lines as well. Um... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, we need to know about this river, which is the most notable thing that Dante has seen in all of hell so far. It's a big cell, big cell. Please bestow upon us the food of which you've already given us a craving. Okay, digression. There is a land called Crete. In this land, there is a mountain. In that mountain, that mountain was once chosen as a trusted cradle by Rhea for her son. What are we talking about? Who, 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 why was Crete famous? Um, who's the son of Rhea? And what's the business about the trusted cradle? Yes, Zeus is the son of Rhea. Trusted cradle? How, why did Zeus need a need a need a, a cradle that involved trust? Because his dad wanted to eat him, of course, having eaten all his siblings, uh, and so Rhea, his mother, was hiding her latest away from the cannibalistic father, um, and she had to hide him. So she entrusted him to a cradle, a hidden cradle. Right? She hid him in Mount Ida, on Crete. So Crete is the place where baby Zeus was hidden uh, from old old man Saturn, uh, who was trying to eat, who had successfully eaten all of his other kids. Uh, okay. Um, and when he cried out, she had her servants clamor to conceal it. Right, yeah, because John doesn't want Dad to come down and eat him too. Within the mountain is a huge old man. So there's an old man in the mountain. 
the old man of Crete. There's an old man in the mountain, standing erect, with his back turned towards Damietta and looking at Rome, as if it were his mirror. Okay, fine. Fine. Um, what does this have to do with anything? Oh, wait. We're talking about the river, which is the most important thing that Dante's seen yet. Hang on, we're going to need a little more than this, Virgil. The old man's head is fashioned of fine gold. The purest silver forms his arms and chest, but he is made of brass down to the cleft. Below that point, he is of choicest iron, except for his right foot, made of baked clay. And he rests more on this than on the left. Each part of him, except the gold, is cracked, and down that fissure there are tears that drip. When gathered, they pierce through that cavern's floor, and, crossing rocks into this valley, form the Asheron and Styx and Phlegathon, and then they make their way down this tight channel, and at the point past which there's no descent, they form Cochitis. Since you are to see what that pool is, I'll not describe it here. Do you feel that you have received the food for which his introduction <laughs> left us craving? Well, I did not, definitely did not, uh, as a young medieval student. Um, and um, the combination of this huge setup and what always felt to me like a massive disappointment, um, that, like, I expected the Red Stream to have a, you know, allegorical significance, right? But all he talks about is the hydraulics of hell, right? Like how the streams work and stuff. I mean, it's a little interesting to find out that all of the rivers of hell originally stem from tears that drip down from the face of this statue hidden in Mount Ida in Crete, but, I mean, that's weird, but it doesn't really tell me anything. Um, and then, exactly as several of you are pointing out, um, uh, Bruce, you've, like, practically recapitulated my own investigative question. Bruce says, Nebuchadnezzar's dream? What's the connection here? Just my question! Uh, what on earth? So those of you who don't know, so un so in the midst of this, in as it were, the very cradle of Greek mythology, right, of Greco-Roman mythology, Mount Ida, on Crete, with Zeus, right? Uh, the old man that's in there has nothing to do with Saturn or with Zeus, right? It has to do with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So in Daniel chapter 2, uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has a, an allegorical dream. He has a dream which frightens him. And it turns out, he doesn't remember the dream, but Daniel, fortunately, is able to tell him both what his dream was and what it means, um, thus one-upping Joseph. But who only interpreted the dream? Daniel can tell him first what the dream was and then interpret it. The dream was of a statue which is almost like this, but not quite like this. Head of gold, upper body of silver, belly of brass, um, legs of iron, feet of mingled iron and clay. 
almost, almost like this statue, except this statue has one iron foot and one clay foot. And he's leaning more on his clay foot than he is on the other foot. So his right foot is his clay foot, and he's leaning on the right foot more than he leans on the iron foot. And he's all cracked. And it's through the cracks in the um, statue that the tears fall. Now, um, how did... <laughs> okay, so now, so this isn't Nebuchadnezzar. Now, does anyone remember? What is the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream? What is the statue? There, he does an allegorical... Daniel does an allegorical reading of this dream. Um, of what the statue is. He interprets the statue. What is the statue? I don't mean what is the gold and what is... The, I mean, this, the whole statue. The whole statue are... Yes, the whole statue are, is the kingdoms of the world. Yes, the whole statue is the kingdoms of the world. Good. Now, quiz, Bible quiz number two. What... The dream isn't just of the statue. There's an action sequence as well. What's the action sequence? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's the kingdoms of the world, and the different metals represent the succession of the great kingdoms, right? The head of gold is the kingdom of Babylon, and the, head, and the, the shoulders of silver are the, is, uh, the, the Medes and Persians, right? And the belly of brass is the Greek uh, empire of Alexander the Great, and the legs of iron uh, is the Roman Empire. Everybody knows this, right? That's very standard. Um, Daniel starts it off and the medievals finish it. Um, uh, yeah, great. Okay, so then a rock comes flying in from nowhere, and we're told that it's a rock that is uh, a, a rock cut without hands comes, ch comes flying in from nowhere, and it smites the feet of the statue, and the whole statue crumbles into dust and is the rubble's all blown away and only the stone that came in remains and it swells up to the size of a mountain. That's the action sequence of the dream. And you've got it in one, Julie, the universal, I think universal, this is one part of my master's research I do remember is reading every in every uh, uh, medieval interpretation of, Neb of, the, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that I could lay my hands on. And I think every single one of them universally interpreted the stone that comes in as representing Jesus. Stone cut without hands being an allusion to the virgin birth and how the kingdoms of the world would be shattered, uh, and only the kingdom of God uh, would remain. Exactly. Jesus is the rock. That's just it. That's just it. Um, uh, so, yes, yes, that's um, how the rest of the dream goes. But that's not what Dante talks about. Uh, Virgil doesn't give us that. We get, there's no rock. We have the statue which is standing there. It's still standing there, kind of leaning right over on one side. Because it's an uneven statue, unlike the other statue, which is even weaker as it gets lower down the feeder, partly of clay and partly of iron, but it's... Anyway, it's unstable, but it's even. Anyway, this one has got the one clay foot that it's leaning on, and it's all cracked. So instead of the whammo, 
demolition of the statue, which the dream features. We have, like, a slow decay of the statue as it is cracked, and the tears of the statue. Okay. Now, on top of that, um, on top of that, uh, we have, see, awesome, you guys are asking just the right questions. Um, why is the gold not cracked? Stephen, what a great question. Each part of him except the gold is cracked. Yeah, why is the gold not cracked? Great question. No idea. It almost leads you to believe that, like, whatever that statue is, it's certainly not the kingdoms of the world, right? Except, oh, wait, hang on a second. Where is this? It's in Crete. Why is Crete important? Uh, let's go back a second. Um, a devastated land lies in mid-sea, a land that is called Crete. Under its king, the world once lived chastely. Anybody know what that's about? We're now shifting from Bible quiz to mythology quiz. Greco-Roman tradition quiz. Um, under its king, the world once lived chastely. What's that all about? You got it, Bruce. Exactly. The golden age of Saturn. Uh, the reign of Saturn might have been uncomfortable for his children, but it was awesome for everybody else. Everybody knows, uh, in classical tradition, that th history began in the golden age. Back at the beginning, everything was awesome, right? Uh, and um, the, uh, the everything was awesome back in the beginning. Um, and the... Um, It was like, very like, very, there are many similarities, uh, not 100% similarities, but many similarities between the depiction of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 and the depictions of the Golden Age in classical mythology. Um, there was no, like, there was no violence, there was no um, agriculture, because, like, you just, like, the fruit fell into your hand. Nobody had to grow food. Nobody hunted. Nobody ate meat. Uh, th there was no killing. There was no shedding of blood. Um, everything was happy. The world lived chastely and in peace. Um, and, um, and then Jove took over. And that was the Silver Age. Things were still okay, but not so good, right? And then they continued to degrade until now we're in the Iron Age. Um, not, you know, in the archaeological sense, but uh, the Iron Age is what they call it. It's when everything like is now corrupt and people are horrible and, uh, uh, you know, there's all kinds of unjust violence and, and, uh, and, everything's, and everything's bad. Um, so that was... Um, yeah, Jocelyn says, chastely, were there no babies? Uh, no, Ch chastity does not, um, I see, how, how, does not preclude babies. Chastity does not preclude babies. Um, uh, yeah, chastity is consistent with babies. Um, chastity and virginity are not the same thing. Chastity is sexual virtue. Um, a chaste husband or wife is a husband is not a husband or wife who does not have sex, but a husband or wife who only has sex with their spouse, right? Uh, uh, a, a married person who has sex with uh, with the with with the spouse is chaste. That that's chaste. 
you can be perfectly chaste in doing that. Um, if you're unmarried, of course, virginity is your only chaste option. Um, but for married people, yeah. So, so yeah. So no, so chastity doesn't mean no children. Um, live chastely, meaning meaning like there was without without sin, without sinful desire. And then again, people didn't even want to sin. Like again, a lot like the Garden of Eden, the Golden Age. Um, yeah, this came up a bunch during the Maori class. Yeah, it sure did. It sure did. Um, okay. The like intertextual soup <laughs> that Dante makes in this passage between the golden age of cre- the myth of of Saturn and the Titans and the consumption of his children and you know with the cradle and Ida and the uh, the golden age of the world under Saturn um, and therefore the the juxtaposition you know the the, the in the Christian context, necessary evocation of uh, of the Garden of Eden at the same time, um, with the kingdoms of the world in from Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the statue, uh, and the cracks and the tears and the similarities to like the different that not only the very large similarities but also the differences. Like, where's the stone? Um, are we anticipating the stone? Stone. It seems like we're anticipating the stone. That there's something, um, just like the statues, like almost standing on one foot, right? Um, anyway, I. This is what like enticed me as a student to attack this passage, um, and I don't think I succeeded. Uh, but um, uh, exactly, Colette says I can see how this soup would warrant a master's thesis. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There was so much to sort out. Um, it was um, uh, it was a lot of fun there, um, but. Um, Awesome. Yeah, Jennifer says this feels like a jab um, at, well, again, I wouldn't say the Catholic Church. At Rome, meaning the papacy. Because remember, we're talking about Dante here, right? The Pope is generally the bad guy. Um, but he doesn't, he, Dante does not, he, he doesn't oppose the Church. He opposes the Pope, who lives in Rome. Except when he's the other one, but never mind. Um, the Pope who lives in Rome, right? Uh, and... Um, so, yeah, Rome means the Pope, but it also means the Roman Empire. So, you know, or is it a comparison with the fall of the Roman Empire? Yes. <laughs> Both. Both at once. Both at once. Isn't it fun? And, wait, and the result of it all is a river. That's the whole point. The whole point of this is that this is where the rivers of hell come from. The Asheron, the Styx, the Phlegaton, and Cocytus. Yep. So that's why the river in this channel, most important thing. Most notable thing that he's seen anywhere. Berellini, in her commentary, talks about the tears of mankind. How the... She kind of... I don't know. I won't say skips over, um, but... um, doesn't, I feel, really dig into the whole Jupiter-Nebuchadnezzar thing uh, to my full satisfaction. But 
um, she talks about the tears. Uh, she talks about the old man of Crete as a sort of embodiment of human sin, right? Of the, the, the tears of human sin. Certainly, the cracks in the statue, the decrepitude of the statue. And here, Stephen, is where we get back to the gold head without cracks, right? The gold head without cracks now begins to seem not like the kingdoms, like, don't, don't be thinking about Babylon anymore, right? Now it seems like maybe what we're thinking about is the ages of man, right? Because he's juxtaposed that ish that image from Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the successive empires, right? And he's juxtaposed that with the golden age to the silver age to the you know brass age to the iron age, right? That same pro- progression of minerals means something very different in those other cases. So he's taken, on the one hand, he's evoked the image of the kingdoms of the world in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but he has superimposed upon it this idea of a moral decline, right, of the fall of man. And the statue, the fallen, well, almost fallen, the listing over to one side and cracked statue is weeping, right? And the tears of that statue, the tears which, if we understand the statue to be in some sense connected with the worldly, the kingdoms of the world, and not in a political sense, right? Not in a, um, uh, not in a in sort of a you know military sense or conquest sense, uh, but in the sense of the progress of humanity, right? The whole history of humanity from the dis, you know, from the fall and then down through continued degradation, but not quite keeled over yet, right? Um, and awaiting, um, and awaiting the stone, right? To come in and smash things and renew things, establish the mountain, right? That will replace the statue. Um, Not sure I succeeded in my pledge to not spend too long talking about this, but um, I still don't think I can give you a full explanation of it. Um, but, Stephen, you are right that it does seem to be notable in one sense that it doesn't seem to... It's not part of the punishment. Um, it's running through hell, but it doesn't seem to be part of the punishment. It quenches the fires above. It's this river which enables Dante to traverse this circle without having fire raining on him the entire time. Because above the river, there's like a cloud which, you know, where the, you know, sort of the, 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 the water and the fire meet and, uh, and it's, it's, there's like a little mist canopy over the river. Um, Stephen, there does seem to be relief there. Right. And I can't help but remember the landslide that enabled Dante to climb down here in the first place, uh, the landslide that was created at the harrowing of hell. Um, that seems to me an interesting. I would be interested to compare and contrast those two things, the river as the avenue by which they go through and the landscape as the stairs, stairs down which he was able to descend uh, into this place in the first place. 
Okay. Um, I'll end with this. And I asked him, but if the rivulet must follow such a course down from our world, why can we see it only at this boundary? Because remember, the hell that he's traveling through, he's been traveling on foot through hell. Um, he didn't, like, fall asleep and wake up in hell. He walked to the gate, passed through the gate, and he's been climbing down. The concept, right, of the hell that Dante the Pilgrim is receiving a vision of is that it's, it's an actual subterranean space. Um, it's an actual... It's, it is on earth here. Um, and so, and this is why water that trickles down, the tears which trickle down from Crete form literal rivers in hell and obey the rules of water flow everywhere else on planet Earth. And so his question is, why haven't we crossed this river? If it comes down from the top and is descending down, then shouldn't we have had to cross it already? We've been going around in circles here. And he to me, you know this place is round. And though the way that you have come is long and always toward the left and toward the bottom. So as they've gone, they've been taking left-hand turns uh, every time. So they've been going around steadily in one direction around the circles of hell. Um, you have still not completed all the circle, so that if something new appears to us, it need not bring such wonder to your face. So yeah, uh, why haven't you seen this river before? Oh yeah, because we haven't come around the whole circle yet. So that's why. Don't be mystified, Dante. It all makes perfect sense. Water flows just the way it normally flows. Um, and I again, Master, where's Phlegaton and where's Lethe? You omit the second and say this rain of tears has formed the first. Um, he knows, of course, what rivers are supposed to be in hell because it's in Virgil. Right? It's in it's in it's in Aeneid's trip to the underworld. Um, the rivers of 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 Hades are very famous, um, and he's listed four of them. But there's a fifth, the River Lethe. What what what's mythology quiz? What's significant about the River Lethe? Bruce and Gerald are saying, "Why why left? Why going left?" Is that an allegory somehow? Yeah. Of what? Don't know. Um, it seems more sinister? Yeah. Sure does, doesn't it? Bruce, I agree. It's very sinister, turning left. That's a pun, of course. Uh, sinister means left hand. Um, uh, but uh, you get Dexter and sinister. Uh, okay, so... they're in hell so they're going to the left all the time um, good yes you guys have the Lethe question sorry I asked the question and didn't uh, um, so do they turn to the right up Mount Purgatory I think they do Bruce I think they do. 
turn to the right when they go up Mount Purgatory and they turn to the left when they're going uh, down in hell. Um, uh, and I, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, there's the left hand turning and the right hand turning and the left hand turning is the bad way. Like if you want to go, like those who are on the left hand side are the damned and those who are on the right hand side are the saved. Uh, so yeah, that does seem to be what he's invoking there. And you guys are right about Lethe. Lethe is the river of forgetfulness. Um, and remember Virgil's answer is going to be, nope, that's not his answer. His answer is going to be, it's not here. There is a river Lethe, but it is not in hell. He was wrong about that one, right? Virgil got, turns out, only got an 80% himself on the rivers of hell question. Uh, it was, um, uh, four of them are down here, but only, but one of them is not. It is somewhere else. It is in fact in purgatory. Um, maybe someday we'll see that one, but okay. Um, I'm going to stop here. It's late. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's time to let you guys go. I didn't get to those who walk about, uh, we will get to those who walk about next time. Um, and, uh, that'll be interesting. Here's my Here's the question. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a homework question. Not reading commentary or notes, just looking at the text of Canto 15. What sin is it? What sin is being described? What exactly, what version of violence against God are those people guilty of? I'm asking this not because it's a secret. Um, I'm asking this because I want you to go back to the text and think about that question and see what answer the text suggests to that question. Um, because I find that really interesting. Okay. Um, thanks very much, everybody. Uh, we'll get there next time. Um, I actually get to meet Brunetta Latini here, who's been hovering over my shoulder all evening. Um, so thanks. And I'll see you guys next, next. Yes, I will see you guys next week. Uh, still going to be through, uh, I might be away end of February, but, but I'll be, I'll be here through then. So, okay. Awesome. Thanks everybody. Good night. And I will see you guys. Uh, I'll see you guys next week. Bye now.